Romans chapter 12. Please take your Bibles and turn there, please. As we come to chapter 12, we are coming to the final section of this great epistle. And you'll notice that as chapter 12 begins, the first phrase contains the word therefore. It is a key word in the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, it is a key word in the Bible. Put a circle around the word therefore whenever you come across it in the Bible. And remember this rule of thumb. Whenever you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, why is the therefore therefore? Because the therefore is there for a good reason. The word therefore is like a... A hinge on a door. If you evaluate a hinge on a door, you'll notice that it's half of it is attached to the wall and half of it is attached to the door so that the door might swing on the wall. And the word therefore is like that. Half of it is fastened to what has gone and half of it is fastened to what is coming. And the word therefore shows the link between what has gone And what is coming. And what is gone is chapters 1 to 11. Explanation of Christian doctrine. And what is coming now is the practical application of Christian doctrine. Now it's probably good for for me to point out that there are some people who just love doctrine for doctrine's sake. They dot their doctrinal I's and they cross their doctrinal T's and they enter into doctrinal debates but the sad thing about many people like that is they don't show a lot of interest in the practical outworking of that doctrine. Now I must admit that in the contemporary church these kinds of people are probably in the minority. The majority of people if we could categorize them are found within the other group and that is people who don't have a lot of patience with doctrine And all they want is the practical stuff. All they want is the solutions. All they want is the how-to. And they want it yesterday. Well, it is as out of order to want doctrine without practice as it is to want practice without doctrine. God doesn't work that way. God insists that we understand the truth. And out of our understanding of the truth, then to make practical applications and therefore... We have the word therefore in Romans 12 verse 1. I want you to notice the tone with which Paul begins this last section of the epistle. I beseech you therefore brethren. It's an earnest entreaty. He's asking in a brotherly fashion. He's urging us and encouraging us to do certain things. He's urging us and encouraging us to respond practically. In light of the truths of chapters 1 to 11, Paul is urging us and encouraging us to make certain evaluations and to make practical applications in four areas in the first eight verses. And those areas have been identified for you on the outline sheet this morning. First of all, he wants us to evaluate the reality of our commitment. Now, I'll just let you know that Our major time, most of the time, is going to be spent on these two verses this morning. 
He wants us to evaluate the reality of our commitment. Commitment is a key word in the Christian experience, even though to a large extent it has fallen out of use generally. In fact, it's a word that a lot of people just don't like very much. Some people react rather strongly against it. And yet it is a fundamental word in the Christian life. Let me remind you that if God the Creator wasn't committed to keeping creation going, we'd be long gone. Let me also remind you if God was not committed to keeping coming our way all of the basic necessities of life, we'd be long gone. Let me also remind you if God had not been committed to deal with us spiritually and eternally in ways that we could never have handled ourselves in Christ, then we wouldn't have any spiritual or eternal hope at all. We'd be long gone. The commitment of God through Christ to humanity is the reason we exist. It's the reason that we have anything at all. And therefore, it is appropriate for us to recognize that God is looking for a commitment, a response of commitment from us. Commitment is the word. God's commitment to us is a fundamental spiritual truth and our commitment to God is an indication of our appreciation for that truth, our experience of that truth. And so Paul begins at this point by urging us to evaluate the reality of our commitments. And this is what he says. Actually, he makes three requests that demonstrate the reality of our commitment. Verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. That's the first one. Verse, secondly, verse 2, and be not conformed to this world. Thirdly, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Three responses there that will show us the reality of our commitment. First of all, there is this idea of presenting our bodies. The word present there has to do with the offering of a sacrifice. And it's a most appropriate concept and word at this point in time. Remember, the first part of this epistle, the 11 chapters, have been an extended statement about the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. But now what the Apostle Paul is saying is on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ made for us, there is a response for us in terms of offering. There is a response from us in terms of a sacrifice that is totally appropriate. You know, basically two types of offering in the Old Testament. There were those that had to do with dealing of sin, dealing with sin. And there were also those other offerings that came out of a glad responsiveness of heart, an expression of, our, of gratitude because of God's mercy and his grace in dealing with that sin. And the first 11 chapters are a statement concerning God's dealing with our sin in Christ. And now he's talking about another kind of sacrifice that is the expression, the response of redeemed people responding as, as a glad and thankful act of gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. It's an expression of gratitude that's been talked about here. It's an, it's, this is the kind of offering that he's talking about. And what is it that he wants us to offer? Well, the answer is our bodies. What does it mean when it talks about presenting our bodies or offering our bodies? The body is the vehicle through which you express yourself in the physical environment. 
And that's the only way you can express yourself in the physical environment through your body. The body is the way that you and I express ourselves in a physical environment. Let's say, just for instance, that uh, you and I are walking towards each other and I notice that your body, and particularly that part, that round part that sits on the top, it seems to me that it's rather flushed and it's sort of moving around and the eyes are kind of twinkling and the mouth is open and out of the mouth came, comes a sound which sounds like ha 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 okay? and I see this physical manifestation of you coming and I determine and I discern that so and so is really happy today at this moment. However on the other hand if I see you coming towards me with a furrowed brow and your eyes are sort of, uh, sort of closed a bit more and your mouth is sort of has a vice-like firmness about it and you're pounding your fist into your hand, then I can deduce you know, so-and-so is, is not in a, a good mood at this moment. So this is how I discern how you're feeling. The body is a wonderful thing for expressing yourself. The body is a wonderful thing for letting people know what's going on within you. For, in, for instance, if you are sick in hospital, and a friend turns up in their body and they sit beside you. You say to yourself, you know, this is great. This is really nice of them. They took their time to show care and concern for me. Or if you have a job that needs to be done and it's too big for you to handle on yourself, someone else turns up in their body and they put their bony shoulder under the load and help you to bear it. You say that's an expression of love that they have in their heart towards me. You see, bodies are wonderful things. They are a vehicle for expressing the totality of your person. And what Paul is saying here is this, that in a very practical sense, in this physical world, let your body express what's going on inside of you. And as you do, make sure that what comes out of you is an expression of your thankfulness to God. Everything you do in your body is an expression of thankfulness to God for what he has done for you. Think of all the ways that your body expresses you. And think of all the depart different departments that make up you. And think of the ways that those things are expressed through your body. So that you're saying to yourself, to what extent is my body expressing to others my gratitude for God? My gratitude to God for all that he's done for me. Now, Paul says, if, you, if we begin to think in these terms, if we think in these terms, we're beginning to think in terms of a glad response of gratitude in our hearts coming out through the, the workings of our body. We're, we're beginning to understand how it is that Christian doctrine should affect us deeply in the way that we live. Because Jesus didn't just die upon the cross to take our souls to heaven. He died upon the cross to help change our behavior, change the way that we live in this body. Now I'm not suggesting you can figure all of this out in a moment. In fact, this is a, this is a lifetime work that we're talking about here. Something that's going to go on for the rest of our days, but this is the principle. Offer our bodies, present our bodies, the totality of our being, being an expression of thankfulness and gratitude to God for what he's done for us in Christ. Now notice, however, there's also a strange expression used here. He talks about a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. One might have thought that those, those two words were mutually contradictory. If it's living, it's not a sacrifice. If it's a sacrifice, it's not living anymore. 
Well, Paul carefully chooses this striking term to suggest that when we present our bodies to the Lord as a glad response, a glad offering of what the Lord has done for us, we, we don't do so in any, any passive sense, but rather we do it in a very, very active life. In other words, our gratitude to God is shown through our bodies as a living faith. It's not just a faith that we have that we keep to ourselves and no one knows about. It is a faith which comes out and is expressed through our living. Is what James talks about. It's the works that demonstrate our faith. It's not some mere passive belief. But it is something which is vibrant. It is physical. It is tangible. It is ex an external expression of how I respond to God's offering of Christ on my behalf. Notice he also used the word holy to describe it as well. You might remember previously he talked in the book of Romans about our bodies being the instruments of sin. He spoke about the members of our bodies being the instruments by which sins are committed. Well, in marked contrast to that, the believer in Christ, someone whose life has been greatly affected by the gospel, Paul says, look, instead of your body now being an instrument for sin, Offer your body as an instrument for righteousness. And as you do this, you'll begin to discover that your body, a living sacrifice, live in gratitude to God, is becoming increasingly characterized by holiness of life. Now we need to remember holiness, holy is not a dirty word. We're the ones who've sort of messed up the concept. Holiness means to be distinctively and winsomely, attractively what God wants us to be. It's not something negative. It's not something onerous. It's not something that we wouldn't want. It's actually something which deep down in our hearts, the Spirit of God is actually stimulating to be produced out of our lives. Notice he goes on to say that this kind of life, the presentation of living our life this way, is something which is acceptable to God. You know, one might have thought that any offering made to God would be acceptable to him. But it's probably good for us to remember back to the Old Testament. This is one of the reasons why the Old Testament is such a helpful thing for us. Think back to the book of Malachi. Where it says there that people would bring a sick animal or a lame animal to the Lord. And the Lord said, I will not accept it of your hand. And as you read on in the context, the real issue there is the thing that makes the offering acceptable. It's not so much the intrinsic quality of the offering itself. It's the attitude behind it. The attitude with which such a, an offering is made. And the Lord Jesus himself reminded us of this very, very same thing. When he talked about the big spenders who came to the temple treasury with a big fanfare. And threw in all their money. And then there was this lady who came with next to nothing. She just threw in just a pittance. And the Lord tells us he was absolutely thrilled with the latter and not at all impressed with the former. It's the attitude that counts. So when we put all this together, what do we hear the Apostle Paul saying to us? Brothers and sisters, he says, I ask you, would you be prepared to make an offering of yourself as a response of the offering of Christ to you? Would you prepare to, to, to do that in such a way that it would begin to be demonstrated through your life in a physical and practical, vital, tangible way? 
so that the life you live is a holy life which demonstrates with a glad attitude a responsiveness to God's goodness and mercy. Would you be prepared to do that? This is the challenge. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Now, as soon as we start thinking about that, we might say to ourselves, yeah, I'd be glad to let the Lord have this area of my life. I'd be glad to offer this area, other area of my life, but there's, there's a certain area of my life that I'm not really keen to hand over to the Lord for him to get his hands on. Something like that. The preacher F.B. Meyer told about one of his struggles with God around this kind of thing. He said his life was like a big house with lots of rooms in it. And he was going around to all the rooms one by one, unlocking them and saying to the Lord, take this room, Lord, take this part of my life. And then he'd move on to another room, unlock it and say, Lord, take this room, take this area of my life. But then there was one room he walked quietly past. He didn't want the Lord to go there. And the Lord says, well, what about this room? He said, no, no, you don't want to go there. There's a beautiful room over here I'd like to show you. But he says that the Lord came back to that room and he says, I don't want the keys to the individual rooms. Give me the bunch. Give me the bunch. Give me the bunch of keys and let me pick whatever room I want, at whatever time I want. Let me move unhindered into every part of your life so that at any given moment, any part of your life is available to me, is surrendered to me. This is the sort of thing Paul's talking about here. It's a very reasonable request. I ask you, I urge you, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, would you do this? I wonder what your response to the Lord is just now. What is the reality of your commitment? Notice his second request, verse 2, be not conformed to this world. We are all inveterate conformers because in one way or another, one of the major things that we all want from life is we want to be accepted. It's a basic thing with all of us. And we feel that if we do just certain things, then we would be accepted by a certain group. And there's always a chance that we will do those things if only we know we'll be accepted, even if we know that those things are actually going to be a problem to us. Not infrequently do we counter situations where our principles say no, but our desire for acceptance says yes, and yes wins. And we're simply conforming a pattern. Now it's easy to recognize how desperately we want to be accepted, how desperately we want to be liked, how desperately we want to be needed, how desperately we want to be loved and we will go to great lengths to get that including conforming to principles and behaviors that we know are intrinsically wrong. The Apostle Paul says when you get into the position of offering your body, your life to the Lord as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, an appropriate response to his goodness, and this becomes a lifestyle for you, you get in the habit of living like this, 
What's going to happen? We're going to get in the situations where we have to refuse. We have to refuse to conform to various behaviour as a matter of, of course. And Paul says, and we understand, this is a very reasonable request that God makes of us. Now what is this conforming that we're not to conform to? It says we're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to be conformed literally to this age. Not to be pressed into the mould of this age. The scripture talks about, about two main ages. That is this age, which is characterised by presently evil, it says in Galatians. And then there is also the age to come. In other words, a Christian is a person who has his focus, who has his horizon, who has his interests, has his roots, has his origin, who has the context of his life really wrapped up in the, in the world to come, in the age to come. And that life down here is really just, it's just a transient thing. Now, brethren, that's exactly the dead opposite of what we hear most of the time. What we hear most of the time is that now is what matters, not then. And that the material is what matters, not the spiritual. And that the temporal is what counts, not the eternal. But God actually says, no, it's the eternal, it's the spiritual, it's the things of God that really count. And when you have your orientation like that, when you have your orientation on the world to come, when we have our orientation on, on, on heaven, of which we are actually citizens, will be conforming rather to that age rather than just being pressed in the mould of the fashion of this present evil age. And folks, to do that, to live like that, that's costly. I think you know that. That's why it's called a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that we have to make. But we should be glad to do it. The third request continues present your bodies don't conform thirdly be transformed the word transform there is the greek word metamorpho from which we get our english word metamorphosis and metamorphosis is that thing which happens with this little caterpillar and the time comes when this little nasty caterpillar will stop being its you know hairy wriggly self and its skin will start to grow dry and it will split and it will fall off and out will come this beautiful butterfly. And as you watch the butterfly flutter by, as the butterfly flutters by, you say, what a remarkable metamorphosis. Or perhaps the abbreviated form, you say, wow, that's amazing. What a change. And this is the point. The point, it has been changed from one form to another. That's what metamorphosis means. That's what it's been talking about here. Change one, one, for, one form to another. And the point is from the inside out. That's the point. From the inside out. So what's the apostle saying here? He says when you think about Romans 1 to 11, when you think about the mercies of God, when you think about the gospel truth, when you think about an appropriate response to that, when it comes to steps, not when it comes to offering our bodies, when it comes to not conforming, 
When you, when, you, when you start to live like that, make those sorts of choices, you'll discover there's this metamorphosis happening. There's this transformation in your life which is happening. Something's happened on the inside. It's now working its way out. So what can we realistically expect from a person who's living in the good of Romans 1 to 11? We can expect the offering of their bodies as a glad and joyful response to the Lord. We can expect a clear differentiation of lifestyle between what is going on round about them and what they actually believe in and what they stand for. And we can expect a transformed life, an internal change which works its way out in very evident ways. Now the big question is how does this internal change work? The Apostle Paul uses a very, very significant statement. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, in the earlier part of the epistle, Paul has spoken about our minds grasping truth. He's also spoken about our minds being interested in certain things and being committed to certain things. And what he's saying here is that make sure your minds are thinking truth carefully. And locking into those truths and being committed to those truths. And so far as a spiritual life is concerned, the Apostle Paul is telling us what we need to know. If we're going to live a transformed life, it's going to require a change of behaviour. If we're going to have a change of behaviour, we need a renewed mind. How do we re renew our mind? You go back to Romans chapters 1 to 11. And you read over that again, that truth again and again and again. And you figure out what God says about man. And what God says about God. And you figure out what God says about sin. And what God says about wrath. And what God says about salvation. What God says about forgiveness. What God says about justification. What he says about sanctification. What God says about the Holy Spirit. What God says about his covenant faithfulness. What God, what God says about privileged position. And when your mind is fixed on those things, when your mind agrees with those things, then your mind is changed. And that works out through your behavior changes and the caterpillar drops off and the beautiful butterfly emerges. The Apostle Paul is very straightforward when he says, this is what I'm asking you to do, brethren. Offer your bodies. Do not conform. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Present continuous. Never get over the gospel. You go over it again and again and again and again. Now the interesting thing about this, this is that having given his requests, he now presents the reason for it. It's a very simple reason why he makes such a request. Why God would require these things of us. Verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God which we read about in the first 11 chapters. This is why we're to respond in this way. Now, I want to ask you, if, if, if you, if you are struggling with this, if you are struggling to make such a commitment, let me suggest something to you. Let me suggest to you that you take a notebook and a pen and you take your Bible, you get alone with your Bible and notebook and pen, and you make a list. You go through chapters 1 to 11 and make a list there. Read through and make a list, a detailed list of, of all the ways that God shows his mercy towards us. 
write them all down. And when you've worked through every, every evidence and aspect and manifestation of the mercies of God to you, if, the end, if at the end of that, if you feel, still feel that God is unreasonable in making such a request of us, then I think you should really check your spiritual life. If it, to see if, in fact, you are actually born again. Check whether you have any spiritual life in you at all. Because if you have been born again, if you do understand the gospel, then you will understand that God is not unreasonable to require this sort of commitment by us. As a matter of fact, this is the most reasonable and logical thing we could do. It's the most logical response. Paul says our reasonable service. The word is logikos. It's the most logical thing we could do for a Christian to do. Having given us the reason, he then shows us the result of living out such a commitment. And that result will be, and I quote, that ye may know what is that good, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, occasionally in talking to people, I find out that they really do want God's will for them to be good and acceptable and perfect, but... They want to discover how good and acceptable and perfect God's will is for their lives, all the while they're doing what God says you shouldn't do. And so they come and say, that, well, okay, this, is, this is where things are with me, then this is what I'm doing, and I want you to bless what I'm doing, I want you to approve of what I'm doing, I want you to pray for God's blessing upon me. And so the question is, how can, I, how can you ask, ask me to pray that God would bless you when you're being disobedient to him? And the response is, well, God's gracious and God's kind and God's forgiving. Not like you, not kind, not gracious, not forgiving. God is. So let's get this straight. God is committed to allowing us to discover how good and acceptable and perfect his will is for our lives. Not when we're busy being disobedient, but when? When we're busy offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, when we're not conforming to this world, when we're being transformed, when our minds are being renewed by the truth of the word of God. You do it that way and you'll discover the wonderful benefits and the tremendous blessings of God's will. But you do it the other way and there's no promise of this effect at all. We must evaluate the reality of our commitment. Secondly, and much more briefly, we must evaluate our estimation of ourselves. Verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. There are two problems for believers when it comes to an evaluation of ourselves. Some of us, and it says here very, very clearly, some of us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And others think by inference more lowly of ourselves than we should. The gospel gives us a right perspective here. The Apostle Paul says, okay, we have to get our act together about this because a lot of the things, a lot of the problems he's dealing with in the opening chapters of Romans are about people not thinking about themselves as they should. We've got to get our act together on this point. Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think soberly. 
Evaluate yourself according to divine evaluation. That's what he's saying here. Evaluate yourself properly according to divine evaluation. Now I understand that there are many things that can happen in our lives and many things that can happen in the formative years that can impact our evaluation of ourselves. And they are all things for us to work through with the grace of God and the help of God to come to an understanding of God's estimation of us so that we might properly evaluate ourselves and estimate ourselves. But if I think too highly of myself, then I need to. A renewed mind by reading Romans chapters 1 to 11 will, will be the cure for that. Reading those, that passage of scripture, what will I discover? What I'll discover in those chapters is that I'm a, a sinner, that I'm deserving of the wrath of God, that I cannot save myself, that I cannot change myself, I cannot make myself more acceptable to God. And so therefore, and this is the same for all of us, how can anyone strut around and say, folks, take a good look at me. Here is a helpless, hopeless sinner deserving of the wrath of God who can't change himself, who can't change God, who will be lost for eternity. And if you're sensible, you will admire me and emulate my example. That guy has got a real problem. He's someone who thinks of himself more highly than he ought to think. He obviously hasn't understood Romans 1 to 11. But by the same token, someone who thinks more lowly of themselves than they ought to think, obviously also hasn't properly understood Romans 1 to 11. Because those chapters tell us that the Christian has been saved by grace. And God loves you. And God is for you. God gave his son for you. He gave his spirit to you. He will share heaven in eternity with you. He has committed a ministry to you. He has numberless thoughts towards you. His prayers are for you. His eyes are always upon you. And so really, how can we go around feeling so badly about ourselves when we are sinners saved by astonishing grace? You see, there's one little expression that will cure us for having too high a view of ourselves or for having too low a view of ourselves. It's the same expression that's a cure for both, and that is this, we're sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace. Apostle Paul is telling us that if we rightly understand the gospel, we'll have a proper evaluation of ourselves. We're going to have a healthy evaluation of ourselves. Nothing more, nothing less than sinners saved by grace. And so don't dare any one of us put ourselves up there as something special when we know that we'd be nothing apart from the grace of God. And let us not depreciate the work of Christ on our behalf in any sense when we know that we are the recipients, we are the, the objects, the direct objects of God's love and his mercy and his grace and his eternal work. There's a third thing. As we consider an appropriate response to the gospel and the mercies of God, and that is we need to evaluate our function in the church that we're a part of. Verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, and all the members have not the same office. Verse 5. So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. The concept of the church is something that Paul begins to address in these chapters. 
The body of Christ is the church of Jesus Christ. And the analogy, I think, is obvious. In the same way that my body has many members and all function in different ways, and yet if the body is working properly, there will be a high degree of integration and coordination. And the analogy of the church is this. We look at the church full of people, many different members, full of people, all very, very different, different gifts and different abilities and all kinds of differences, yet they should be integrated and they should be coordinated because, one, they're all presenting their bodies Secondly, they're not conforming to this age. Thirdly, they're being transformed by their minds are being renewed by the same truth that changes them. The problem, however, is that sometimes we don't evaluate our position in the church properly, our commitment to the church, our functioning in the church properly. We do live in a, in a specialised world. And generally speaking, what happens, this comes into churches. And churches tend to enjoy, people tend to enjoy gathering around ministry specialists. And they do the work while the, the majority of the congregation are more like spectators and critics rather than active participants in the life and ministry of the church. And when that happens, that not, not only robs the church of its vitality and versatility, but also tends to produce a dull uniformity where there should be a cohesive and coordinated, lively diversity. The members of the body are incredibly different, incredibly diverse. And that whenever we have such differences coming together to work together, the, who have different ideas often and different outlook often and different gifts often whenever that all begins to happen there is the great potential for friction and perhaps it's because we're reluctant to risk that kind of friction and work on the differences that we have preferred instead to allow just a few specialists to be involved in the ministry and the majority to remain passive and yet it should be pointed out that if the renewed mind is in control, then there's no reason to fear the diversity. It's part of God's plan. There's no reason to give up on the, the coordination which we work at and the multiplicity of ministries which are there potentially for us. For when the sheer delight of mutual support and integrated gifts are experienced, when that happens, when the delight of that happens, there's no desire to experience anything less than the uniqueness of the body, the uniqueness of the life that we have in Christ. It doesn't happen anywhere else where the members are not only members of Christ, but members also one of another. The church is the only place where that happens. This is what, how the gospel works out in our lives. Would you evaluate your commitment to presenting your body in gratitude to God? Would you evaluate your own estimation of yourself? Would you evaluate your own attitude toward the church? Because you see, this is the practical outworking of Romans 1 to 11. This is the practical outworking of gospel truth. It is in these areas, it's in these areas, and they are inspired, it's in these areas that we discover how truly we believe the gospel that we profess to believe. 
Final thing here has to do with the exercise of our gifts within the church. We respond appropriately to the gospel by exercising our gifts. That seems to be quite straightforward. We all have different gifts, it says in verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. The word grace there is the Greek word charis. The word gift, back at the beginning of the sentence, is the Greek word charisma. Actually, it's plural, charismata. Hence the word charismatic. Now, we know that uh, charismatics, that is the title that we give to certain group of people who are interested particularly in the miraculous sign gifts which have ceased. And yet there's a very real sense, it's a legitimate word, there's a very real sense in which we're all as true believers in Christ, we're all charismatic in this sense that as believers we understand that we've been given gifts by the grace of God. God in grace has gifted us, every one of us. Every single Christian has been graced with a spiritual gift, probably more than one. The question is, what do we do with them? There's no question that we have them. The question is, what are we doing with them? Some people just ignore them. Just ignore them. Other people compare them. They go around telling other people, you you shouldn't have the one you've got because the one I've got is better. It's an amazing thing to discover what we do with our spiritual gifts. Notice what the Apostle Paul says, under inspiration, what we should do with our spiritual gifts. You know what he says we should do with them? He says we should use them. Now, to some people, that's a revolutionary concept. We should use them. He says, if your gift is prophesying, that is, sharing forth the word of God, then you should prophesy. That's what you do with that gift. You use it. If your gift is ministering, what, what do you do? He tells us, you, you, you minister, you serve. Now, again, for that, some people, that's a revolutionary concept. If it's teaching, you should do what? If it's exhortation, you should do what? It's quite amazing. What he's saying here is, check your commitment to the Lord. Check your attitude to yourself. Figure out your place in the church and ask yourself, what on earth am I doing with the gift that God has given me? This is the outworking of gospel truth. The other thing that he points out, I think is very, very interesting, is that it is, and I come back to this point, it is the attitude with which you use your gift, which is all important here. If you continue reading, he says, if your gift is giving, okay, notice the attitudinal issue that he addresses, do that with simplicity. If your gift is ruling, leadership, notice the attitudinal thing. He says, do that with diligence. If your gift is showing mercy, make sure you do that with the right attitude. You do that with cheerfulness. It's the attitude in the the expression of our gifts. It's the attitude in the operation of our gifts, which is all important as well. And with that in mind, I think we could and should adapt a very, very simple approach and say this, get this into our head, that if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. It's a surprise. Okay? Let me explain. You know, some people, and, and, and there's a degree of merit and credit in this, some people pursue excellence and they come even into the church pursuing excellence. And the reason... Is this, and it's not an uns, not unscriptural thinking, in a sense. We think, okay, God is excellent, therefore, 
God requires excellence and therefore we should be pursuing excellence and therefore what I have to offer to God should be excellent. That's the logic of it. But there's a problem. If only excellence will do, then how on earth can sinners do that? If only excellence will do, what do we do until we become excellent? And how do you get to be excellent if you can't practice becoming excellent? There's, there's a better way to go about this. And that is this, things worth doing are even worth doing badly. You know, if, 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 if you see someone and you ask them about their spiritual gifts, they say, well, I, I can't do anything excellent for the Lord. I, I, I don't have the ability to do anything excellent. Okay, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing nothing. And the reason is obvious. I don't think they can do anything which is pleasing to the Lord or sufficient for the Lord or that God would bless or that's worthy of him. And that's why in the church in Australia, spectator sport is the, the biggest thing that's going on in many churches. People have been told that they have to do it excellently. They know they can't do anything excellently. And that's the reason why they don't do anything. But if on the, on the other hand, we say to people, you know, anything doing for God is, is worth even doing badly. Then you say, well, why aren't you doing anything? We say, I can't do anything badly. Well, of course you can. We can all do things badly. I'm not talking about sinfully. My wife... <coughs> teaches pre-reading kids and they have their craft and they draw pictures and uh, you know they might my, my grandchildren have been there they, they, they draw a picture of grampy and they say I love you grampy and grampy looks like a monster okay okay and, and but I but I love it why not because it's excellent not at all it's 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 kindergarten art okay but it's because here are these children with limited abilities doing what they can with their limited ability. Even though it looks bad, okay, they're doing it with their limited ability. Tell you what, all of our service is like kindergarten art to the Lord. Okay? I mean, even Handel's Messiah, there's nothing like the music that's going on up there. It's just like kindergarten art, really. And even the best thing that you could ever do or anyone could do, it's just like kindergarten art as far as God's concerned. And he loves it. Okay, because we're people just trying to do our best for him. That's the, that's, there's the attitude there. If something's worth doing, it's worth even doing badly at first. And hopefully we get a little bit better about it as we go along. And this is the way we discover our spiritual gifts. This is the way we discover them. Someone asks you to do something, you say, oh, I couldn't do that. Well, yeah, do it. And, and don't be afraid of doing it badly. And it may be that next week and the week after that, you find that you're improving. And you're actually quite good at this. And others are being blessed. Well, guess what? You've discovered a spiritual gift. Or on the other hand, you do this and it wasn't very good. And the next time it's not very good. And the next time it's not very good. So the next time it's not very good. And uh, you realize, oh, I'm not really good at this. And say, so, okay, well, maybe your gift's not there. It lies somewhere else. No shame in that. Okay, this is how we grow and develop. And some people see you struggling with that. Someone else might say, well, actually, I can do that. And they, and they come to the fore. And guess what? You've just motivated someone to get to work, to use their gifts. It's a win-win. 
In my filing cabinet at home, I've got some of my first sermons and I read them and I think, how on earth did I ever have the audacity to get up in front of people and say that? And it's probably because I was encouraged back then, I was encouraged. If something needs doing, you just get in and do it. And even if you don't do a very good job, you still just do it. You give the Lord your best. You do the best that you can and let the Lord take care of the rest. What's the point of all of this? What's the point of all of this? The point is this, that if we really understand our salvation in Christ, it's going to show in our lives. It'll show in the reality of our commitment It'll show in our own estimation of ourselves. It'll show in how we function within the church working together and it will show in the way that we all use our spiritual gifts, whatever they might be. All right, let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of scripture. Uh, Lord, it's very helpful for us. Lord, having gone through some deep and significant spiritual truths in 11 chapters. That's been a blessing to us. But when it comes to this point of our our responding to all of this, uh, Lord, we we need the kind of guidance that is provided here in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8 and onwards. We thank you for this kind of help. We thank you that there are these four areas that we all need to evaluate Because a proper response to the gospel will require that not only do we evaluate ourselves in these areas, that that we actually take action in each of these areas. This is the practical outworking of such truth. And Lord, when we fail to really appreciate the truth, help us to go back again and to read and to reread and keep rereading and praying that the Lord would open our minds and renew our minds that our Lives, our behaviour might be transformed. I pray that it would work its way out in very, very practical ways so that our, our, our bodies, all of our life is being lived out in a way which people can see. Here's someone who's just happy in their God and is joyful in their God and has, seems to have certain things in order and in their right proportion. And it works out in different areas how they minister to others in the church, how they relate to their brothers and sisters in church, how they view themselves, how they respond to you. Lord, teach us these things. Work deeply in our hearts. May it come out through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.